0: Hi, I'm Juliet Mayers. Welcome to Entering the Inspiration Zone with Juliet Mayers, a podcast for business professionals and entrepreneurs seeking positive connection and professional development. As an accomplished author, speaker, DEI strategist, and member of Forbes Coaches Council, I am living the dream, and I love helping others achieve their dreams. Each episode, I will share with you actionable steps that you can take to build the work and life you've imagined. Welcome. I'm so excited to have this conversation today with Lee Pelton. We're going to be talking about why we should all care about equity. And before I jump right in, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about Lee. He is just an amazing leader. Lee Pelton is CEO and president of the Boston Foundation, one of the nation's leading philanthropic organizations with $1.7 billion in assets. He joined the foundation in June of 2021 after serving as president of Emerson College 2011 to 2021 and Willamette University, 1998 to 2011. Pelton began his academic career at Harvard University, where he earned a PhD in English literature with an academic focus on 19th century British prose and poetry. He's a well-respected thought leader and innovative leader. Pelton was inducted into the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce into the Academy of Distinguished Bostonians in 2020. Known for his civic leadership, Pelton was recently ranked 11th on Boston Magazine's 2021 list of 100 Most Influential Bostonians and named as one of the 50 Most Powerful Leaders in Boston by Boston Business Journal. He grew up in Wichita, Kansas and resides in Boston, and we are so excited that he made that choice. Welcome, Lee.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to see you.
0: Very good to see you. Lee, tell us about your background. You know, what brought you to where you are now? And tell us a little bit about who you are and your why.
1: (laughs) Well, I grew up in a foreign country called Kansas. (laughs) And Wichita, Kansas, in fact. And Wichita, Kansas, when I grew up, was called the air capital of the world because it had all of the major and minor aircraft companies there from Boeing to Lear, you know, a long list. So it was really a working class town. I grew up in a black enclave located in the middle of what was predominantly a white, a white neighborhood. And I went to schools all the way through high school that were overwhelmingly white. And I was, you know, one of a few black faces in that school system. My father was a laborer. For most of his life, my mother cleaned houses until she died, and my grandmother, who lived next door to us, my father's mother, also cleaned houses. Our neighborhood was full of, I think we call shotgun houses. That is to say, if you were standing in the front and you open the the front yard, or you open the front door in the backyard, you could shoot a shotgun clean through clean through the house. the old. Yeah. So we were part of you know, the, growing up, poor, working-class Black folks. My father finally, when he was in his 40s, got another job that lifted us all up into it's a working, middle-class family. Our lives were devoted, were really revolved around our family, around our church and faith in God, and education.
0: it sounds a lot like, like my background. I can relate to you there. And you have taken that background, and you have really, you know, a lot of us come from different backgrounds, but some people find a way to make a path forward. What inspired you? What drove you to pursue the life that you have?
1: Well, I, you know, I think it began with my interest in, that grew out of my own experiences, because I came to discover as I was older especially in my college years, that there was a world out there that was invisible to me. And I didn't, I wasn't connected to that world. And so early on, my interest was in making the invisible visible for young people so that they could see all of the various, the opportunities and the connections uh, that they would not be able to see unless they were to have some help. And so let me give you a couple of examples. I've been a mentor to many, many young people. I was mentoring a young man, smart, black, Af- you know, African-American man who was interested, who was going to go to college, and he did go to college. And at that time, I was president of Emerson College. And so he said to me, not based on any data except that he knew me, he said, "I want to go to Emerson. He's a he was a great football player. I want to go to Emerson and play football." And I said, "But you know, we don't have football at Emerson." <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Then I said, "Did you have you taken the SATs yet?" This is he was a senior, maybe a second term junior. What are those? Wow. And I so you know so I you know my own very privileged children that. The world outside of themselves is to them the networking. Uh, you know, ats they have access to you know you know SAT prep courses if they they wanted to and so on and so forth. And so this is what we call the opportunity gap. You know, and we oftentimes call it the achievement gap in K through twelve. But it's not about achievement; it's about opportunity. And you know, the best definition of equity that I know of is this, you know, comes through this example. Let's take the K through 12 public system. If you were to, if you were to provide, if you were to come to that system with equality in mind as an outcome, all of this student, all of the high schools and the students on a per capita basis would receive the same amount of funding. Right. But on the other hand, if you looked at some of the schools and you said they were disadvantaged in some way, economically or socially, uh, and that they need more experienced teachers, they need more support outside of the classroom. Then you would redistribute the funds so that the kids in those schools would have outcomes that were equal mm-hmm. to all of the other children. Right. And so... That is to say, you would close the opportunity gap between those students and other students. So I don't refer to, we hear a lot about, you know, the achievement gap in high school. That's a misnomer. It's Mm -hmm. really an opportunity gap. And so equity is about closing the opportunity gap. That's the difference between equality and equity is opportunity And equality is about inputs. Mm -hmm. Equity is about outputs.
0: Love that. Yeah, because I think there's so much confusion around that. You know, even though the work that I do, I find myself explaining that concept over and over because people have such confusion. You know, they think, oh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there's also this thought that if you're helping one group, then you are immediately disadvantaging another. And therefore, that this is perception that equity is a bad thing. Yes.
1: Well, that's because there's still a narrative in this nation around the zero sum game. As you said, if you help one group, that means someone's not getting their just share. It was this, you know, it was this this thinking, the zero sum thinking that led to Jim Crowism. Yeah. You know, after the Reconstruction. Well, if all of these black folks and others are going to get something, that means I'm not going to get my share. Yeah, and as we saw in the last, the previous election after Obama, the Donald Trump and uh, many members of the Republican Party played on that. And as I tell my kids, uh, there's nothing more dangerous and powerful than ignorance and fear. It is those two. That is a. That's a toxic. That's a toxic way to be in the world, and it. Yeah to lots of other things. We think of hate standing alone, but hate really grows out of fear and ignorance. Yeah. And yeah. so we see this narrative in American history and even in our contemporary American life. It's happening right now, right in front of us. Yeah. So there are
0: lots of examples. Yeah. No, those are great examples and very powerful. You know, one of the things that struck me about, one I'm familiar with, the work of the Boston Foundation and certainly you as a leader in the community and really beyond, well beyond the Boston community. But one of the the things that struck me was the letter that you wrote in June of 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. You know, it was so powerful and so unfiltered. And in it, you shared your experience about your experience as a Black man and in a way that i thought that was very evil. and you also said that you know the problems that we're experiencing are not just it, that part of it is structural right that's part of these issues are structural and they're built on white supremacy and centuries of racism and you know to it was obviously a very well thought out article but at the towards the end of it you asked the question so what are you going to do and i thought you know that's really, at the end of the day, because that to me says, you know, each of, and every one of us is accountable and responsible for our role in all of this. And so that question to me, I thought, wow, that speaks to accountability and driving change. So I want you to think about when you fast forward to now, right? So here we are in 2023. And what has changed? What, from your vantage point? Have you seen change?
1: Yes, thank you. Do you mind if I tell you a short story about that? Oh, go,
0: go. please. Go right ahead.
1: Because it's important here. So George Floyd's murder was on Monday, May 25th, 2020. My letter was posted that following Sunday. I did not expect the reaction that it received, but it flew around the world, seemed to sprout wings to about seven or eight million people laid eyes on it. Wow. And it had an impact in the city and elsewhere. I was struggling with how to understand and what to say to my community and to my children about what had happened with to George Floyd. And on the following Friday, I stayed up late and I watched that nine-minute video of his murder over and over again over. And I also saw on television, what are called riots, but you know, the, the demonstrations across America. And I thought to myself, America is on fire. And that became the title. On Saturday, I started receiving some pro forma emails from students, principally white students, taking me to task for not having written anything. And they were form letters because they were all saying the same thing. In that respect, they were all performative from my point of view. And so finally, after having received several of these, I said to a student, do you understand how I am implicated in this? Do you understand how it might be difficult for me to speak frankly and honestly about what had happened? And I said, this is not my problem. This is your problem. Hmm. Using the "your" in a very generic sense. Yeah. And unless you do something to change these circumstances, we're going to be doomed to seeing this over and over again, as we just did recently, of course, right. and after George Floyd, very much so. So, yeah. So that question at the end grew out of my convers my email with this, uh, with this student. He actually. Apologized, and then Sunday I wrote it, and but I wasn't clear I was going to write anything. You know, I spent a lot of time with friends of mine, and particularly one friend, was, my son said, "You don't have to write anything, Dad. It's not your problem." Mm-hmm. Another friend has said, "Yes, you do have to say something because it may not be your problem, but people need your voice." Yeah, that's how I ended up writing it. Yeah. Since that time in Boston and probably across America, we've seen a real shift. In leadership in Boston, there's black leadership in just about every area of in about every social and economic area of the city. Yeah, and I could go down the list, but I'm not going to go down the list because I'm yeah. somebody out. <laughs> I
0: don't
1: want yeah. to. Yeah. see it in healthcare, of course, in hospitals. We see it in the nonprofit sector. We see it in the corporate sector. Yeah. You know, we have a an Asian mayor. We have. You know, the wonderful trio of governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general, both of whom are women, black, and so on. I could, uh, you know, we could go down the list. So there has been a kind of awakening in certain cities and areas, but there has been pushback. Yeah. Not only from individuals and, you know, the groups that you would expect, but even governments it's appalling to me for instance and this is this you know this is the zero sum game thinking it's appalling to me for example that florida and the governor in particular will not permit their high school mm. to have african american studies ap courses yeah imagine that yeah imagine the bold erasure of the black american experience as if it doesn't exist yeah which they call races, of course. Yeah. So there is this backlash. We'll always, you know, we'll see it. I mean, that's to be expected. The election of the president who succeeded Obama, that was a backlash for sure. Diametrically opposed everything that Obama stood for. Yeah. He, yes. And, but we've, I think we've made some progress here. Yeah. Yeah. Since 2020. Yeah. Uh, should give us all some hope, but recognizing there will be forces of opposition
0: I yeah do and i you know i definitely see it both in my work and my personal life i think there is the consciousness absolutely has been raised and that's a good thing uh and at the same time as my friend often reminds me these things take time where i'm not the most patient person so i don't buy that (laughs) i'm like you know what If you really want it to change, then do something differently, right? So, so, but I think the points that you're raising and the fact of this, think of it as the the consciousness of people wanting to, striving for comfort. And I hear that over and over again and like, okay, there's nothing comfortable about this and there's nothing comfortable about the people who are impacted in their daily lives. And so let's understand that if you're really going to engage, if you're really going to do something about it, right? That you need to learn to live with your discomfort and work through it. You do. And,
1: you know, I, a lot of black leaders experience what W.E.B. Du Bois called this double consciousness. You have a sense that you're straddling two worlds. Mm-hmm. Right. When I wrote the America is on fire. I was acutely aware of that, and my first sentence was: "While I'm president of Emerson, I'm writing to you today as a black man." And that was powerful. Exposing that, I know that what that helped other leaders, you know, leaders of color in the city to do is to follow suit.
0: Yeah. Know, so. to, yes, I think the sharing up, and I think of it as of what you did as an example, of course, of sharing your reality and it's so important for people to understand the lived experiences of others even if it makes them feel uncomfortable and so so thank you for doing that so how have you from your perspective how, from have your you know you, this rich background that you bring both academically and also in terms of your own lived experience how has that influenced your work at the boston foundation
1: Well, we now say, and we're this is part of a trend that's not anything new, that equity sits in the center of everything that we do. And one of our biggest, I should say, one of our most significant projects is an effort to close the racial wealth gap. And so we've brought together a partnership of 36 leaders in the area to set about chipping away at the racial wealth gap. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, nationally, white households, have a net worth of about $171,000, 10 times the net worth of median black, um, households. And why the net worth? Well, the net worth provides families and individuals with the assets to buy a house, to pay for college without excessive borrowing, to save for retirement, to pass along wealth to descendants and weather, you know, rough financial patches and severe, severe downturns, uh, in the economy. So, you know, in an essential way, it offers security and and well being. Right. But get this: erasing the racial wealth gap will benefit all of us. So, by one estimate, uh, not eliminating the racial wealth gap has cost the American economy seven sixteen trillion dollars over the last twenty years.
0: Wow, it's a big number. Big number,
1: and that closer to home. The view is that, this is from the Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation, that estimated that closing the racial wealth gap in Massachusetts could raise the state GDP by $25 billion in the next five years. So closing the racial wealth gap needs more money in the system for everyone, regardless race or ethnicity, and so on. So,
0: So, but- so I have to ask, so... You know, with those staggering numbers of people benefiting, so why isn't everybody racing to race to close this wealth gap? Well, first of all, because it's so difficult, right?
1: It's so large, and there are so many yeah. different aspects to it. Second of all, because again, because of the zero sum thinking, you know, if you right. give certain folks some, you know, some dollars or you know or support, that's going to disadvantage me. Mm-hmm. That's that's part of it. But it's such a you know it's such a broad area. It's a big. You know, it's, it's in every part of our life. And so what we're going to focus on is on home ownership and the scaffolding that supports owning a home, such as access to capital, home appraisal, and mm-hmm. loan approvals, because for most of us, home ownership remains the largest source of family and individual wealth in America. Yeah. We're also, we understand the critical role that affordable rental housing, Plays and enabling households to make the transition from renting to owning. So we're going to focus on, you know, you know, as I said, all of the scaffolding right. that uh, that contributes to home ownership. Now, a lot of work is being done at the city through Mayor Wu and, and also through Governor Healy, who has both of whom have home ownership and housing in the forefront, their agenda. But let me give you some examples, a couple of examples at a level that's 38% below their neighbor. 38%. Wow. And so, you know, one wonders, you have to wonder what plays into this and right. clients and so on and so forth. So that's one issue. How can we correct for that huge gap? Yeah. When we think of credit scores, uh, credit scores are, you know, they're structured. They have to be because these mortgages get securitized. And in order for one... To have confidence in uh, purchasing these security, these securities, these assets and securities, they want to be reassured that, uh, we don't have another 2008 I you know, episode of toxic, you know, what were these toxic securities uh, with homes that were a lot worse, a lot less than had assumed to be. So these credit mm-hmm. sports are- Yeah. However, there are folks who come, I'll take Boston from certain areas where they live in risk. They live in credit and you know adverse societies. Taking on credit is not seen as an advantage, right. it's a disadvantage. So they right. so you know, so they come here and they don't have the credit. Or right. imagine the person who doesn't have credit so much, but who has lived in a rental and rental housing, say for ten years, never missed payment. A payment. Right. <laughs> ever. So that person's credit worthy. But that experience doesn't fit into the you know the credit algorithm, right? So the question is, can we urge some financial institutions to broaden their you know their metrics for credit worthiness to include other kinds of you know other kinds of actions that would indicate that this is a reliable right. credit? Right. Right. So, so those are just you know a few of the things that we're going to be looking at. Access to capital, of course, is one. Some banks have already started experimenting with no down payments, yeah, for folks, and very low mortgage rates, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, this is a great group. we full of you know CEOs, presidents of leading banks, yeah.
0: The- but it sounds like Lee, if I can interject here, it too, that there's a role for education around cultural how different cultures operate. So, you know, I think of myself, I'm originally from the island of Barbados and a lot of West Indians, you know, the having no debt or very little debt is a positive, which of course, then to your point, disadvantages that person from a credit scoring standpoint. So helping to educate the, both the people who are creating the algorithms and those lenders. About to your point, the you know what are those alternatives? How else can you really evaluate the credit worthiness of this person without disadvantaging them? That shouldn't be it shouldn't be penalized because you don't have debt if you're uh, somebody who's has the ability to pay it back, which is really what they're trying to get at, right? right. Yeah,
1: yeah. And you know, there's studies that that show there's a direct connection between the historical challenges that have kept people of color from home ownership and the challenges facing by people of color. Because without the home equity as collateral, they receive less favorable loan terms. Right, right. the loan terms, they face more hurdles while managing yeah. their debt. Yeah. And without, you know, with fewer historical banking relationships, they have fewer options to compete financing. And so, you know, this has an impact not just on home ownership, but it has an impact on building community wealth.
0: Yeah. It's a vicious cycle, vicious cycle. So I cannot believe the time is like racing away here and I'm really enjoying our conversation. So in a minute, I'm going to ask you, Lee, to two things. One, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners and also to share with them how they can reach you? But in the meantime, I want to just highlight some of the, the gems that you have shared with us in this episode in terms of, you know, the whole concept of why we should all care about equity. And I think it's very powerful, one, that you come at it from a place of authenticity in terms of sharing who you are as a Black man who is straddling both the your own individual identity as well as the institutions in which you represent. I think the whole concept of that, one of the main concepts I love that you talked about is closing the opportunity gap, which I think is so powerful and is important for us to shift our paradigm. From looking at it as an achievement gap and really looking at it as how do we close the opportunity gap so that we're all ending up in the same place and making sure that people have what they need in order to get there. The other thing that you mentioned definitely in terms of the role of leadership. And I look at when I think about leadership, people often think of people with the titles and I think of really anyone who wants to influence change is a leader. And so that question that you had in terms of what are you going to do is another major key takeaway for me when I think about the question you asked that student is really a question that all of us should be asking ourselves. What are you as an individual, as a business leader, as a student, as a fill in the blank going to do to make sure that you are centering equity? You mentioned centering equity in terms of the work of the Boston Foundation And how important that is in everything that you're doing around that and the input that you're getting from the 36 leaders have come together to do that. And that's another thing that we all can do in terms of when we think about from in answering that question, what can we each do to make sure that we are centering equity regardless of what our roles are? Regardless of what our titles are, regardless of what it is that we do on a day to day basis. I also think that this whole concept of, you know, not only centering equity, but having some very tangible things that the foundation is working on is something that people, you know, that concept can also be deployed to other areas of business. Again, using that equity lens. In this case, you talked about home ownership and really looking at the scaffolding behind that home ownership to make sure that. We are making it accessible for people who may not fit the traditional model or fit the the traditional algorithms, so that we are truly being inclusive in our approach and not disadvantaging people who may just have a cult, different cultural norms or different way of operating. And so, I think those are all things that we really can use and really stop and ask ourselves: How can I? deploy the, these types of principles? How can I make this real in terms of me as an individual addressing equity? So I think those are all very powerful. And I just want to thank you and applaud your work. And certainly I want to give you a, a another opportunity if there's anything else that you would like to share with our listeners that you haven't yet shared, if you can do so now.
1: Well, I often quote James Baldwin, who said that not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. And that's truth-telling. And so none of the issues that we have discussed today happened by accident. We right. didn't happen by accident. And so, you know, I would encourage us, myself and others, to understand how we got here. There's a history here that we need to understand. Uh, and understanding it will help us resolve those
0: issues. Well said. And how can our listeners reach you?
1: I'm easy to be reached. I you know, you my email address at the Boston Foundation. It's Lee.pelton at tbf.org. I do this crazy thing and answer all my own email. <laughs> and uh, so you should go reach out to me.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. But once again, thank you so much for spending some time with us here on Entering the Inspiration Zone. Really appreciate it.
1: It's been great. And thank you for the work that you do. It's really important and very special. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Entering the Inspiration Zone. Until next time, we would love to hear from you. So if you'd like to join our mailing list, please send an email to info at inspirationzonellc.com. That's info at inspirationzonellc.com. And be sure to put podcast in the subject line. Thank you and have a fabulous day.